0: The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. And we're going to continue in our series in the book of Revelation. So you can turn to Revelation chapter 8 again. There are Bibles in the back. If you need one, you're welcome to those. Or come on up, Joe. In your Bible app, Revelation chapter 8, let me pray for us briefly, and then Joe's going to read our passage for us. Holy Spirit, we ask you to open the eyes of our hearts that we may behold wondrous things out of your word, out of your law, your instruction, and may your word have its intended effect for every single person here. Help us to yield to you. Give us ears that hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Revelation 8, 6 through 9, 21. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And one-third of the earth was burned up, and one-third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and one-third of the sea became blood. One-third of the living creatures in the sea died, and one-third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on one-third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. One-third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one-third of the sun was struck, and one-third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the night might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth." In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and sulfur, f- fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, are their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Thank you, Joe. A scripture reader's
0: challenge today. December 7, 1941, a day which will live in infamy, it is said, the attack on Pearl Harbor, but also a day of unheeded warnings, of unheeded warnings. January 27, 1941, a coded cablegram is sent from the U.S. ambassador in Japan to the State Department, warning of a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. January. August 10, 1941, a British agent tells the FBI a planned attack on Pearl Harbor would, quote, happen very soon. December 7, 1941, at 3.52 a.m., an unidentified submarine is spotted off the coast of Pearl Harbor, but no actions are taken. Then December 7, at 7.02 a.m., a fleet of planes approaching Hawaii is spotted on radar, but it's assumed they are a fleet of B-17s coming from the U.S. mainland. It was a day of unheeded warning. If you could sum up all that Joe just read for us it would be don't make the same mistake don't fail to heed the warnings now we know this is a series of warnings because of how the passage ended people refuse to repent they wouldn't heed the warnings God is after people turning to him and knowing his love, knowing his grace, knowing his mercy in Jesus by heeding the warnings. God is speaking to us from these verses in his love, in his love, saying, heed these warnings, for in doing so, friends, he holds out to us blessing. The apostle John began the book with a promise Quote, blessed, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Blessed are you, rich, richly happy in your soul, in Christ, if you heed these warnings. Warnings first, warnings first from the the physical realm, you might say, at least as they're described here. Warnings from the physical realm first. What we are seeing are God's just judgments on a world in rebellion against Him. That's what's happening. God's just judgment on a world in rebellion against Him. And If you're thinking, we've already seen that tab, you're right. You're right. There are three cycles of judgment happening in Revelation Seven seals on a scroll, then seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And those cycles repeat the same period of time, judgments over the same period of time. We likened it to a football play that you are watching on replay from different camera angles. And so these cycles are covering the same play. They are covering the same period of time, the period of time between Jesus' first coming and second coming, but, but the cycles do build. They do intensify. There is something progressive happening here. The bowls in particular to come are a more full and final judgment. Here we are in the second cycle of those judgments initiated by trumpet blasts. Like the trumpet's Ancient Israel used when they were besieging the city of Jericho and they marched around the city and they blew the trumpets communicating something, communicating judgment is coming on that city. That's what these trumpets are. Communicating, they are warnings of judgment to be heeded. Let's pick it up in verse 7. In verse 7, the first angel blows his trumpet and it says, Hail and fire burn up a third of the earth and the trees and all the grass. Now, when you see a third in this passage, that means a limited judgment, not the full judgment yet, a limited judgment. That's what's being communicated. It's not like a mathematical equation. It's saying, here's a limited judgment happening. We're not to the end yet. And it's an echo, it's an echo of God's plagues in Egypt that we saw in the book of Exodus. One of those plagues, God sent thunder and hail and fire. So don't think here of the earth as literally on fire. We must, friends, think symbolism, symbolism, Perhaps, perhaps this is symbolizing famine in the earth that results when our physical world is damaged or destroyed. And we see this today oftentimes, don't we? Food scarcity in parts of the world. Then verse 8, the second angel blows his trumpet and it says something like a great mountain... Verse 8, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Another limited judgment, another echo of a plague in Egypt when the Nile was turned to blood and fish died. But there's more here. A great mountain burning with fire is an Old Testament reference to the fall of Babylon. So the symbolism here, the symbolism might be of political realms falling, political realms falling, bringing degrees of economic hardship as ships are destroyed here as well. And these things we see around our world today, don't we? Political upheaval, often bringing economic hardship to many happens today. Verse 10, the third angel blows his trumpet. Verse 10, and it says, a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. Now, Wormwood was a bitter extract from a plant, and it became an Old Testament metaphor for bitterness, especially the bitterness of sufferings. And the like. So we have here with this third trumpet bitter water and people dying. Again, think a plague in Egypt was like this when the water became undrinkable. And we see this today at times. And the need for drinkable, potable water for people around the world and sometimes people dying without it. And then, verse 12. The fourth angel blows his trumpet, verse 12, and a a plague of darkness results. It says a third of the sun is struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. What's that about? It's echoing the plague in Egypt of darkness on the land, A, a physical, almost tangible darkness, perhaps here symbolizing, perhaps symbolizing a kind of spiritual darkness. If you think about it, the Egyptians... When Israel was a slave there, but the Israelites knew God, the Egyptians were in spiritual darkness. The Egyptians were spiritual slaves. We had a prayer walk yesterday. We were praying in the neighborhood here in Porter Hill for people to to know Jesus and his love. At one point, we're at the top of the hill back there looking down over parts of La Mesa, and I was thinking about these verses. I was thinking about how beautiful our area is and how much spiritual darkness is all around us. That seems to be what's in view. This is our world now, friends. This is our world now. These judgments taking place in various forms, in various ways, which are warning us. In Luke's gospel, in Luke's gospel, Jesus mentions a tower that fell and killed 18 people. The kind of thing that happens in our world every day. A a tragic accident. But Jesus says two things about that tragic accident. He says, first, don't assume those people were worse sinners than you. And second, he says, take it as a warning for yourself. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, that's not all the Bible says about suffering. But it is one piece, and it's germane to this passage, that such tragedies are like flashing warning lights to take stock of ourselves, Am I ready to meet God myself? Am I ready to give an accounting of my life before Him? Am I ready to stand before His awesome holiness and judgment seat if I am killed on the freeway going home? Or have a massive heart attack tomorrow? I think that's how this should function for us. The average life expectancy in the U.S. is, I read, 77 years. But that's not a guarantee. That's an average. That's not a promise. I notice now articles when people die who are younger than me. It gets my attention. Matthew Perry, the actor from the TV show Friends, died recently. He was 54, two years younger than me. My point is simply, these warnings from the physical realm as they're described, they're meant to get our attention. They're meant to serve our souls. That we would heed these warnings because none of us knows what tomorrow will bring. And then the chapter ends with a triple woe. An ominous woe! 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 Because the judgments to come are even more sobering and serious. Secondly, warnings from the spiritual realm. Warnings from the Spiritual realm. Next, chapter nine. Then chapter nine, verse one. Chapter nine, verse one. The fifth angel, it said, blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given, given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, the identity of this star fallen from heaven is debated. Of course, everything in Revelation is debated. But probably, probably it's a reference to Satan. But notice he's given. He's allowed to have this key. Make no mistake, friends, about who's running the show here. Make no mistake about who's in control here. God is sovereignly allowing everything that we read about. Then John sees a locust invasion. A terrifying possibility in the ancient world. A locust invasion, but not actual locusts. In verse 4, in verse 4, these locusts are told not to harm the grasses or any plant or tree. The very things that locusts eat. In fact, in the first trumpet, all the grass was burned up anyway. Because this is symbolism. You need to think symbolism. These locusts symbolize, represent real demonic beings, real demonic beings that are allowed to torment people here. But it says not, not torment those who are sealed by God. And we saw who those were in chapter 7, all of God's people in Christ. So God's people don't experience these assaults, at least not to this degree or in the same way. These demons are allowed to torment those outside of Christ, it says, for five months, a limited period of time. But not kill them. Nevertheless, the torment is real. Notice verse 6. And in those days, verse 6, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Then in verse 7, this demonic horde, so tormenting people, is described as horses prepared for battle with, with faces like human faces, hair like a woman's hair, and teeth like lions' teeth. Don't try to draw that later. It's symbolism, symbolizing demons who are swift, powerful, intelligent, and ferocious. And their leader clearly identified in verse 11. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon, meaning destruction or destroyer. The devil or Satan. So clearly we've shifted, haven't we? Clearly we've shifted to the spiritual realm, you might say. Not to bifurcate those things, but clearly this torment is spiritual. People want to die but can't. It's not physical, it's spiritual or psychological. Likely the torment of guilt. Best guess, likely the torment of guilt leading to despair. Guilt is a universal human experience. Whatever people say their moral standard is, when they're honest, they'll admit in their thoughts, their motives, somehow they've fallen short of that standard. Guilt is a universal human experience. Christians, of course, experience this in ways, but we take our guilt to the cross and empty tomb of Jesus. We wash our robes white in the blood of the Lamb, chapter 7 said. But if you reject Jesus, that guilt will eventually lead you to this despair. It will gnaw at you over time. It will be like a plague on your heart. And at some point, you will long to escape it. And the only way to do so is through Jesus Christ. So turn to Him now. Trust in Him now. His life, death, and resurrection, He is a mighty fortress. Great Savior. And then we press on in verse 13 of chapter 9. Verse 13 of chapter 9. The sixth angel blows his trumpet. We'll get to the seventh angel and the seventh trumpet later. Sixth angel blows his trumpet in verse 13. John hears a voice, quote, a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. This is a reminder of what we saw last week in chapter 8. The prayers, the prayers of God's people on that altar. So God wants us to make a connection now. Don't forget their prayers, he's saying. God is answering their prayers. And friends, probably you've caught the gist here, some pretty frightening ways. See what happens next. Verse 17. Now, John is developing what we saw in that fifth trumpet, verse 17. This is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates like the the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Notice that it came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. Now the demonic horde is given more leash. And physical death does seem to be happening to some. Perhaps, perhaps these plagues from the mouth of these demons symbolize the lies the lies they tell to destroy image bearers of God. As Dennis Johnson says, these immaterial beings, these immaterial beings murder by their lies. Think of what Jesus said in John 8. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, a liar, and the father of lies. Greg Beale says, quote, These demons torment, at least partly by deception, at least partly by deception, and then make certain the spiritual fate of their victims by imposing physical death. That's the best description I found of what's happening in the sixth trumpet. Deception in some fashion, ending up in death, demonic hordes murdering with lies. Maybe lies you're entertaining sometimes, lies that God does not love you, or lies that rejecting God's ways is best. Lies that human autonomy, self-determination is what life's really about. Lies that God is a killjoy, keeping us from our authentic self. These are warnings. But sadly, like Pearl Harbor, all of these warnings that we just saw, they fall on deaf ears, don't they? That's what we find in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent, did not turn to God. So, what are we to do with this? What are we to do with all of this? Again, I think the simple answer is don't repeat the error of Pearl Harbor. Instead, heed God's loving warnings. Heed God's loving warnings to trust in and follow him. You know, as sobering as these warnings should be if you don't know Jesus, this was first written to seven real churches. Seven churches representing Jesus' complete church throughout time. And the temptations for those Christians, representing all Christians, came in two main forms, my oversimplification. Two main forms they experienced or were tempted by physical suffering, especially in persecution, and spiritual slumbering. Physical suffering in persecution, which would apply to all suffering and abuse and trauma and every other trial we experience. And spiritual slumbering, because so often we're asleep at the spiritual wheel. There's much comfort here for for the suffering church. Their prayers are being heard. Justice will be done. But this passage seems to address more so, doesn't it? The slumbering church. I mean, look, notice the issues that are highlighted in verses 20 and 21. Notice the issues at play. They did not, it says, repent of the work of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols. Idolatry here. Idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Some of the churches, you might recall, addressed in Revelation were embracing false teachings, false teachings that said, you know, a little idolatry is okay. A little compromise, a little sexual compromise, a little moral compromise, just to fit in. It's no big deal. And maybe those false teachings are the murderous lies From the mouths of demons, John has in mind. But we have our own ways of slumbering, don't we? I do. Our own idolatries, our own heart compromises, our own expressions of false worship. Often it's good desires that become controlling desires for money, possessions, sex, leisure, getting our way. Our appearance, our health, our fitness, approval, acceptance from others, food, obedient kids, a perfect marriage. Often, often good desires that can rule our hearts as an expression of worship. Sung and I were in Santa Barbara last weekend, and we brought back one of the local papers, and I was looking at it yesterday, and I discovered yesterday that for a mere $10 million, I could buy a great house in Montecito. And I examined that, and I thought about that, and I thought that'd be a good idea. If I only had $10 million, I could be truly satisfied in life. That's all I need. Do you have $10 million for me? And envy begins to grow in my heart, and dissatisfaction for my house. It could be so subtle. In 2016, there was a plane crash in Dubai. Thankfully, all 300 people safely evacuated the plane before it was consumed in flames. But in the evacuation, a, a frightening phenomenon. Many people slid down the emergency chutes clutching their suitcases. There's a video of the inside of the plane after the crash, and people are getting up and opening the overhead luggage bins and hauling down their luggage while flight attendants scream at them, leave your bags behind! kind of a frightening picture of our own hearts. And sometimes the warning we need. Revelation 8 and 9 are saying we're on a burning aircraft. It's going to all be made new, but, but not yet. It's a world under judgment. Yet we can cling to our luggage, despite the fact it might be hindering us from following Jesus, distracting us from God, slowing us down, isolating us from community? What's that for you? There's some luggage you're clinging to, and that's slowing you down. It's distracting you, it's hindering you. Here's how these judgments help us. They walk you further down that road to say, let's see where that would take you. They walk you further down that road until you see a warning sign that says, danger, bridge out ahead, turn around, don't go here. See, these visions... They're like the picture on the wall in C.S. Lewis's, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. These are kids observing this picture of a ship on a wall, just a picture of a ship, a painting of a ship on the wall. And as they're watching it, suddenly the waves in the picture start to move. And the ship starts going up and down and up and down. And water is spraying in this picture. And then, and then, Lucy, as she's watching this picture, feels wind from the scene in her hair. And they smell the salt air in the picture. And they have real water splash on them. And the next thing they know, they're pulled into the picture itself. And they're in the sea. That's what apocalyptic literature and this passage is seeking to do for us. It's just trying to pull you into the picture and just kind of feel it and experience it and spiritually benefit from it. To feel the reality of God's just judgments on a rebellious world and to be sobered, right? Not callous, but, but sobered. From famine, from water scarcity, from political upheaval, from economic disaster, and the spiritual darkness in this physical world. And maybe even more so, right? To be pulled into this picture and see what is unseen to our natural eyes, demonic Beings, real, evil, spiritual beings, and to be maybe repulsed by their hideousness, sobered by their desire to destroy you, to see the torment of their guilt outside of Christ and the lies by which they seek to kill. So, allow this picture to pull you in. Let it splash on you. Think, think of, just think of these three plagues in the sixth trumpet. These plagues of lies spewing from demonic beings. Think of those plagues of lies spewing from demons when temptation hits you this week. When you want to click on something, you know you should Or do something in secret you know your spouse wouldn't want you to or your friend would be concerned about. And in that moment, get pulled into this picture and realize this is a bait and switch. That at some point, in some fashion, ultimately, 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 those lies originate from evil beings who want to take me out. And destroy you. And then we realize two crucial things. We get pulled into this picture, we realize two crucial things. The stakes are really high. And don't, don't we need community in this way? Don't we need our brothers and sisters in Christ help us walk with us, care for us, pick us up when we fall, pray for us when we're hurting? be there to hear where we've sinned to help us get back on the right track. And the first thing that happens is, I think, we realize the stakes are really high. And the second thing is, we are really blessed (laughs) as we heed God's loving warnings. I mean, friends, why all the connections, Why all the connections to the plagues in Egypt? Why all the echoes here to the first exodus? You know why? So that you would remember the second exodus in Jesus, the greater exodus in Jesus. You would remember how in the first exodus, they put blood on the doorposts and lintel of their homes, the blood of a lamb, the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of a substitute, so that God's just judgment would do what? Pass over them. And then you would say, I am so blessed to know the second Exodus in Jesus by the blood, the sacrifice of the substitute that God's holy judgment has passed over, he, over me. Do you remember Revelation 1? There's a doxology. It says to him, Jesus, who loves us and has freed us, freed us from our sins by his blood. That's Exodus language, freed you. Freed you, freed you from your sins by his blood. Freed you from the power of sin. Freed you from the penalty of sin. Sin's power broken, sin's penalty removed once for all. So yeah, heed the warnings. As you trust in and follow the Lamb of God, slain. Let's pray. And I don't, know, I don't know what the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you about in his love and care for you. But you can bring that to him right now. We can start to heed the warnings in this very moment. And sometimes it's as simple as, God, I just want to acknowledge this area of compromise and pray for your help. I want to acknowledge where a good desire has been a controlling desire, ruling me, and bring it to the blood and righteousness of Christ, the cross and empty tomb of Jesus. And know that he is eager to meet you right where you are and help you. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, For such a sobering and helpful passage. We ask that you would lead us afresh to find refuge in you, shelter in you, our mighty fortress, our great Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.